Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff and Valerie and all of our musicians and singers who led us in our worship. Welcome back, ARPC at Adam. And welcome back, ARPC at Bishan. And welcome all those who are tuning in to this live stream. And we know that we are blessed whenever we get to hear God's Word. There is a new meaning to this. Absence does make the heart grow fonder. Is that true? Says so you turn and look at the people around you and say, I missed you. <laughs> Truly? I did. Right? And so we pray for the full restoration of all our services when the children come back and we'll keep praying, uh, watching the global situation and the local situation. So we are blessed because we listen to God's Word. And we are in the book of Genesis. And we have arrived at Genesis chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. Let's explore a theme that runs through. And one of the themes that runs through is about defining moments. So I do not know what you think or remember, what has struck you, what you have experienced of defining moments in your life and my life. And so, World Cup 1994. Let's see whether the first slide comes on. And the final was between Italy and Brazil. And the star of that World Cup in 1994 was Roberto Baggio. He had scored five goals in the tournament itself and propelled Italy to his fifth World Cup. And his form was inspirational. And so they were favourites to win against, against Brazil. That's a miracle, favourites to win. And then in the final, it came down to penalty shootouts. And who would take the final penalty shootout for Italy? The last shot, Roberto Baggio. And so you need to ask the question, is he capable? Can he handle the pressure? Is he worthy of this last spot that will determine all things because they were level? A defining moment for him. A defining moment. He took the shot and he missed and that's, can you see the Brazilians in the background? Jumping for joy. He missed the penalty shootout that cost Italy the, the, the crown. And then his life was never the same personally and never the same professionally. Because in the 1990s, it was quite common, especially in Latin America, for footballers who don't do well to get killed, to get shot, to get assassinated. And that was lingering on his mind in post-World um, post, uh, Cup conferences, uh, uh, interviews, and he shared about that. And as you think about this, defining moments shape us, scar us. Bigger word, traumatize us. And we all have defining moments in different ways. Here in Asia, here in Singapore, a huge defining moment is getting your exam results. And as you get exam results, some of us cry, some of us burst into, into thanksgiving, and it defines you for life. I've told this story quite a few times, but it's worth telling again. That this young man, this lady, they fell in love in JC, went on, and then the parents of the girl said to him, you should drop him because he's not, he didn't qualify for university. And so against all her wishes, she dropped him. She broke up with him. What do you think this young man did for the rest of his life? He spent the rest of his life chasing degrees. And by the time he came to see me as to what he should do, I think he was contemplating doing a PhD or a postdoc. A PhD or postdoc. And in the conversation, of course, I asked, 
not what you want to do, but why do you want to do this? And he said he just wanted to upgrade, felt insecure. And so I just challenged him a little bit. If you feel insecure in having a degree, you already have a degree, you feel insecure, your master's holder, what about the construction workers who come from overseas to work here? What about those who never finished primary school? And yet, somehow, by the common grace of God, they're able to feed the family. So when I dug a little bit deeper, it was because he hadn't overcome that he was dropped, that he was forced to break up because he didn't qualify the first time. Some things in life become defining moments. They, they shape us, they scar us, they traumatize us, and they become our reason for living. And there could be some people that you know that got, that got retrenched. And from the time they got retrenched in their 40s and 50s, it's so hard to bounce back. You see them men, totally different men, totally different women. They walk hunched. There is a, an atmosphere of despair on their faces. And it happens. And sometimes in marriages, in families, a conversation, a conversation over dinner, after dinner, where someone was petty about something and the conversation spirals downhill, and from that conversation, the family is never the same again. Defining moments, my friends, they make or they break us. And all of us have them, not just the Roboto Bajos of this world. And so it comes to Genesis chapter 7 and 8 as a defining moment for the universe, a defining moment for the world. And it all falls and rests on the shoulders of one man. And that man's name is Noah. And so the question we need to ask as we read this passage is, is he worthy? Is he worthy of the task that has been given to him? And so three ways, three portions here. Noah and the flood from chapter 7, verse 11 to 24. Then Noah after the flood, chapter 8, verse 1 to 19. And then what on earth does Noah all those years ago have to do with you and me today, sitting here as we face a global crisis called COVID-19 or whatever personal crisis you may be facing personally? And so, to really understand Noah in chapter 7 and 8, we need the story of God up to this point. By God's grace, we started here in ARPC, Edinburgh Presbyterian Church, preaching 2020, a new decade, a new year, a new decade, and we thought we pressed the reset button by preaching on Genesis, the book of beginnings. And so chapter 1 is the beginnings of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means there's nothing that's been created without the will of God. Then in chapter 2, the camera zooms in at the heart of God creating the entire universe, all the galaxies out there, the epicenter, that's a big word now, epicenter, the headquarters of the universe is not out there. It is actually earth and the Garden of Eden where God puts Adam and Eve. So it's the beginning of mankind, Genesis 2. Then very sadly, unthinkably, as God sets out to bless men and women, we could listen to the serpent and not trust God, but trust in the serpent who comes along to speak. Does God, did God really say? So it's the beginning of rebellion against God and rebellion expressed in personal sin against God. By chapters 4 and 5, it has spread. Oh, that's another big word, epicenter and spread. COVID is really affecting us. 
It spreads not just simply to Adam and Eve, but it spreads now to their children because Cain kills his brother Abel. You want to know where every sibling rivalry comes from? It's that DNA of sin that spreads firstly to family. So if you wake up and each day you have this angst against your brother or your sister from young, you fight with them, please take note, it's because of family sin. And God says, when you turn against me, you will surely die. The serpent said, you will not surely die. And they surely died. By Genesis 5, you get the genealogy of Adam's line. And the family tree of Adam's line, and the family tree is, he lived X number of years, and then he fathered Y, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Then by chapter 6 is the beginning of global sin. Here the spread is global and against that backdrop of God's story for us. Here is the beginning of God's comfort. Why God's comfort? Because as we were introduced to the person of Noah, his name means comfort and his name means rest. For the first time from chapter 3 to chapter 7, this is the first glimpse that something good is going to happen because it has been curses, curses, curses from chapter 3 onwards with the spread of sin. So with that, we plunge in to understand this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth, tell me, 40 days and 40 nights. What do you call that? Plenty of rain. Plenty, plenty of rain. You look at that and it's the preciseness. On January 24th, 1987, I got married. On 26th of July, 1959, I was born. Why am I giving you that precision? Why is he so precise with this? The precision is to tell you this is real. The birthday is real. The anniversary is real. These are real people in real time under the real God experiencing either two destinies, judgment or salvation. It seems very strange as we read all these accounts and it begins with the strangeness of the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive were beautiful, and they took any whom they liked. Are the sons of God angelic beings? Are the daughters of men human beings? And so there was the going against of God's design. Could it be the sons of God were the sons of Seth? And the sons of men were the ungodly line and was the intermingling? Whatever we do not know, my, my friends, at this point, strange but it's true, things were not going according to God's blueprint. His design of you and me. More about that later. So what happens? All the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Can you imagine this? The seas totally unleashed. The waters are not at that level. It's totally unleashed from the seas. And the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell and fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Remember creation, how God created? It was all through a process of the seven days, the six days, Separation, separation. So God separated the waters above from the waters below, and then God separated the waters from the ground, and He called it land. 
So with creation, it's separation, separation for life to be filled and life to be beautiful as we fulfill God's will. When God judges, all He has to do is He lifts His hand from creation, He lifts His hand from sustaining the world, and then everything is undone. So have you ever seen the fury of uncontrolled waters? Have you ever seen the fury, felt the fury? So I was in Bible College in Sydney, Australia. And every year, they send us off for a mission, a week in which we go off to another setting, and we just are trained and exposed to doing, to sharing Jesus, doing evangelism, sharing Jesus, cold turkey knocking on doors, just talking to people. We arrived at this place and we couldn't do any of those things because it rained and it rained and it rained. I remember one day we were in town just waiting for the rain to stop so we could begin our ministry, our sharing with people on the streets, the door knocking. And then we stood at the river and saw cars just floating down. You know how heavy a car is? When a car just floats down a river at high speed, you know there's plenty of force in that water. You multiply that by a zillion times when God lets go His hand of sustaining the world. It's a terrifying picture. And that's what He wants to paint for us, the writer under God, of this terrifying, not just picture, of reality. So who was spared and who escaped? And as you, as I ask this question, who was spared and who escapes it? It's so obvious, Chris, just get to the point. Noah was spared. Noah's family was spared. And all who entered the ark with his family was spared. We know that. It's comprehension 101. Who was spared and who escaped? Please take note how he records this under God. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature. The first time you read this, the first time you heard this was according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, was in creation. That part of God's wise and loving purposes is creating us according to our kind so that we can beautifully bear the image of God and rule God's creation on His behalf. And so when God starts to save Noah and his family, the, the animals going in is like creation. That though there is judgment, it's not the total uncreation of creation. There's continuity. So who was spared and who escaped? They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those who entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him. And the word used for God is not generic God in the Hebrew. At this point, is the personal name of God, Yahweh, shut him in. And whenever you see the Lord, it is his personal and name of endearment. So only one person in the last 20, 30 years has called me by my Chinese name, Ketiam, Atiam. Used to be my late mother who lived with me for many years. 
And that's a term of endearment. It's a personal name that she gave to me. And I know that. Christopher was something we added on, and my mom cannot pronounce Christopher. Please, please, please. She knows my name. Note God's rescue plan, and there are a few things to note here. Why two by two of all flesh? Is God's way of saying, though He judges, there is continuity with His creation plan. Salvation never destroys creation. Salvation completes creation. Very important for us to know. And all with the breath of life. The first time you and me heard of the breath of life was in Genesis chapter 2, in the creation of Adam, the first man. And Adam was just a clump of clay. He was just dust until God breathed into him the breath of life. And please take note, if you sit here, you have the strength to come to this service or you're sitting at home and right now you're eating brunch sitting at home. Are you? <laughs> just checking, just checking. If you woke up to the breath of life and with COVID-19, if you were infected and, this, and your health went downhill, you don't have to tell the persons who have been infected you are fighting for the breath of life. And any medical personnel beginning with the doctors treating you with so much sacrifice will tell you there is nothing within their powers to keep you alive apart from that machine. And that machine is not what's keeping you alive. It's actually God who's keeping you alive. The breath of life comes from God, not from machines. All the machine can do is delay death. It doesn't give life. Delaying death and giving life are two different things. Only God can give us life. Amen? At home, are you saying amen? And then please take note as God continues with this, as He brings in the animals to Noah, and this sounds so similar, sounds so similar, as He brought all the animals to Adam. He now brings all the animals and notice it is fixed sexuality, male and female of men and women and of animals. There is no such thing in creation, there is no such thing in salvation as fluid sexualities. And please take note of the punchline here. The Lord shut him in. He could have said, after Noah noticed that all the animals that God commanded him to bring in were in, he and his sons and their daughters ran, and their wives ran around shutting every window and finally they shut the door. The account says very clearly, the Lord shut Noah in. What on earth is the significance of that? That God's rescue plan, whatever you want to call it at this moment, God's rescue plan, God's redemption plan, God's restarting plan, God's salvation plan is by grace all the way. It's by grace that God told him to build an ark. It's by grace that God told Noah to enter that ark. It will be by grace that God preserves him through the flood. It's by grace that Noah will exit that ark. From entry to exit, so from building to entry to exit, it is God, God, God and His grace to choose Noah and his family. Please take note if I could make the point personally, pastorally, that this grace is not, is an exacting grace, a demanding grace that demands the response of Noah, 
that demands the obedience of Noah, that demands the faith of Noah, and Hebrews chapter 11 says that. So God's grace to us is exacting, is demanding, is an obedience grace. You must never treat grace as cheap. You must never treat grace as lazy. You must never treat grace as, as what? As lawless grace. And so it's very important that we get this right, my friends. Because many times in life, we take God's grace to us. Common grace to give us life. Common grace to give us food. Common grace to give us protection for granted. And then ultimately, we take God's salvation grace for granted. We become lazy with it. So how often has it happened? Pastor Chris, can you or any of our pastors come down? Pray for my father, pray for my mother. Six blockages, they just found. Six blockages. But thank God they found. Can we, so we, got, we rushed down. We pray for. He's totally open to be prayed for. And by the grace of God, he's safe. His heart is back to normal. Post up. Guess what? His, his forgetfulness of God is back to normal. His grumpiness against his wife is back to normal. His, his pettiness with his children is back to normal. His, his unhappiness with life is back to normal. Everything is back to He has just taken God's grace for granted. It's cheapened grace. It is lazy grace. It is lawless grace. The grace that we receive from God, that we now see in Noah's life, is actually an exacting, demanding obedience grace. So salvation grace, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, salvation grace, is ours an exacting obedience grace? That you know that God has been gracious to me? And so yesterday I gave the example, if, if the unthinkable happened and I committed adultery against my God-given wife, Mona, and then she finds out because you saw me with another woman, and you told her, and she finds out, and she confronts me together with my pastors and my leaders. And I ask for forgiveness, and because Mona is a godly woman, she forgives me instantaneously, she forgives me fully. There are two responses to her full and free forgiveness. One, I'm never the same again for that defining moment of grace. Never the same again. And I say to God and I say to her, I, don't, I say to God, I don't deserve you. I say to her, I don't deserve a second chance. And she would say, yes. But I could think in my heart as a second alternative, wow, it's so easy to get away. It's so easy to be freely and fully forgiven. And the next time I see another attractive woman, why not? With my eyes first, then my heart, and then why not? That is cheapened grace on steroids. Exacting grace, saving grace, obedience grace is when we know that we're undeserving of what calls us to. So what might happen with this? At the end, I'll speak more about this. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased, bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Just if you're still paying attention, 
Can you just tell me in just one verse, what are the two biggest words? I've helped you there by bolding it. What are the biggest words the writer is getting our attention to? Earth and waters. Earth and waters. Is that right? It's absolutely right. You can't get that. It means you're not conscious. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains on the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubit deeps. So earth and waters appear six times in two verses. There's a point here. What is the point? A very huge point. Did you notice the waters not just fell? The waters not just rose? The water, what did he mean by the waters prevailed, the waters triumphed, the waters won, which means that if God wants to judge, He will judge. If He says He's going to blot out life by waters, He will blot it out. And the waters triumph over the mountains. And so I went walking. I love walking. And so on Thursday, I think, on Wednesday, I ended up walking Mount Faber. Usually I walk by the waters somewhere, Kalang River or, or Labrador, different places. But this time I so happened to walk Mount Faber. And then I walked downhill. That was easy. Then I walked uphill. Then I said, my goodness, this is not so easy. And Mount Faber is not so high. And I knew I was, more, I was more unfit because my dog walked faster than me. And the dog is much smaller than me. Every step I take, it has to take three steps. And it was racing. <laughs> Can you imagine the waters covering Mount Faber here in Singapore, which is a tiny molehill. It's not, it's not even a mountain. And these are most likely the mountains of Ararat, some of the highest mountain ranges in the world. And so the waters prevailed, the ark floated, the mountains were covered. The point was, all life died. That's the point. God said, and it was so. That's the point. Don't miss it. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. The categories are all there, preciseness to say this is all real. It's happening under the real God to real people, to real animals in the real world, in real time. They were blotted out from the earth. And against this great contrast of all life blotted out, human life and animal life, only Noah was left. And those who were, who were with him. And so we keep playing here COVID-19 against the backdrop of SARS 17 years ago in 2003. But we forgot between SARS and COVID-19 that we are facing, there was such a thing called H1N1 that affected thousands of people in Singapore and took the lives, I do not know, of 41 or 21. I read the stats somewhere. But we don't remember. But we do remember. Remember SARS? 17 people died during SARS. And one of the first sources, very sadly and tragically, was for this lady who went to China or Hong Kong and she probably caught it in a lift or touched a lift button. She came back and infected her parents, her family. She went into ICU. By the time she came out, she recovered. She discovered that five of her own family had passed away because she was the super infector. Can you imagine waking up and finding your whole housing estate 
has been decimated. That there are only one left standing in Bukit Timah. The only one left standing in Punggol. You wake up and your housing estate in Sembawang. There's only you and your family. That's what the bomb shelter is for. You find out if you jump into the bomb shelter here in Singapore. That's what no one woke up to find. All life had died. But the turning point of the whole account, the turning point of the whole record, the turning point of the whole experience, and the turning point of the whole record of that experience is these three words that you must know for the rest of your life, having listened to this. God remembered Noah. Four words begin with, but God remember Noah. And this is the first hint that something good is going to come out of this judgment and this punishment that blotted out all life on earth. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him. Notice the language, all, all. And God made a wind blow over the earth. And that's reminder, reminiscent, and echo, and echo. When God created the world in the beginning in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Same word. As God creates with His Spirit and Word, God now recedes the water. God judges and then He recedes the water by the Spirit. And the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from heavens were restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. As it fell continually, it receded continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. So the significance and importance of God remembering. Please take note. When God, whenever God remembers, it's to say that He's going to act. And He's going to act to do what? He remembers and He acts in mercy, in grace, in love to save us. You and I remember things, especially painful things, and then we act in anger towards others. You and me could remember sentimental things of the past, and then we go back to the past, girlfriend, boyfriend. We remember things and we, do, we act wrongly. Whenever God remembers, He acts rightly. He acts to save us. And two incidences in Genesis, He remembers Abraham after the destruction of Sodom. In Genesis 30, He remembers Rachel and gives her children. By Exodus chapter 2, Israel had, the Hebrews had grown so much and they cry out to God because they were living under slavery and God remembers and brings them out of slavery. Whenever God remembers you and me, is to remember you and me to save us. Which leads us to a very important thing. Which leads us, I think, to a game-changing question. And the game-changing question is, have we forgotten God or has God forgotten us in the busyness of life, in the prosperity of life? Is begging the answer. Has He forgotten us or we forgotten Him? As someone said, if God feels far, distant from us, guess who moved? Is it too profound early in the morning? 
Let me just say it in slow motion for you, for everybody, whether you're live here or live stream at home. If God seems distant from you, guess who moved? God is not in the habit of spiritual amnesia. God is not in the habit of spiritual dementia. God is not in the habit of spiritual forgetfulness. If God seems distant in our prosperity or our depravity, it's because we moved away from Him. Did you notice I said, if God seems distant in our prosperity, in good times, boom times, when I'm prospering away, and God seems distant in my depravity, when I'm suffering away, you know God cannot win? Good times, we forget Him. Bad times, we curse Him. Not easy business to be God, you know? Can never win. Good times, we forget Him. Bad times, we curse Him. If we don't curse Him, at least we ask, why? For all the good times He gave us, nine good times, one bad times, you never remembered Him for nine good times. You ask Him why for one bad time. Never thank Him for the nine exams you pass. You ask Him why did I fail this one. That's us in our fallen nature. Have we forgotten God or has God forgotten us? Please answer this question by the time you finish this service, by the time you finish listening to this sermon. Because I want to say to you, the God of the Bible experienced in Noah's life is that we meet a God who never forgets, never reneges, never U-turns on His covenant, on His promise to love us. And so, God remembers and God acts and Noah responds. And so I have to summarize this portion because it's huge. And so the waters abate, the waters abate, the waters recede. And then Noah sends firstly a raven out. And then he sends a dove. But the dove found no place to set a foot. And she returned to him to the ark, to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the earth. They were receding, receding, but not receding enough for Noah and his family to come out of the ark. So Noah put out his hand, took her and brought her into the ark with him. How many of you have that kind of intimate relationship with a bird? <laughs> with a bird. <laughs> they say that this dove was most likely Noah's pet dove. I have no idea. But notice the sensitivity and the tenderness and the warmth in which she let, her, let it go and welcome it back. And maybe this is a glimpse of the beautiful picture of what it means for men and women to rule over the creation of the world, rule over the creation of God, the creatures of God, that it's this tender care for the skies and the seas and the earth and the animals, this tender care, not the ill-treatment of them, not the taking advantage of them. So again, on my walks, every time I walk and I see plastic bags in waters, I see plastic bags on beaches. I see people's tapau, packet food, all there with their plastic bottles. And I keep asking myself, are they not able to pick this up? Are they handicapped that they can't pick this up? No. What is the answer? Not that they cannot pick this up, they will not pick this up. And I'm tempted with every walk to bring a huge plastic bag to pick up after everyone. That will spoil, spoil my walk because I can't walk. I'll be bending over every few steps. 
That's us. No more creation care. You know why no more creation care? Because no more worship of Creator. And that's why we went wrong. That's how we went wrong. Here's a beautiful picture, a glimpse of that. Post-flood. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, here is the difference. Two flights out, next flight in, behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth because subsided enough for plants to grow. And then he waited another seven days to be absolutely sure. He waited seven days in Singlish to be double confirmed. And then he sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. God remembers, God acts. And Noah responds. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that was with you, all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing. You read this account and say, this God is very chong here, right? Keeps repeating. He really said that at the entry. He's going to say that at the exit. Yes. With God and faith in God, please get used to God being repetitive towards you and me. And praise God, He's repetitive of His Word. You know why? Because you and me suffer very deep, destructive amnesia of God. So they may swarm on the earth and be, be fruitful and multiply, continuation of creation. Salvation is not the undoing of it. So lessons for us as we come to the last portion. Did you notice in creation, God said and it was, God said and it was. Did you notice in, in judgment, when, God re when man rebels against God and sins against God, God noticed this and whatever God said, it was. Whatever God said, it was. I will blot out all life on earth. He blotted out all life. But Noah, you go and build this ark, no matter how silly it looks like. You go and build this ark against all peer pressure. You build this ark and you will be safe as you listen to me. God said, and it was. God said, and it was so. And so, this account actually begins with what God saw. It's what God sees that really matters. God saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention, every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. God looks at our rebellion, God looks at our sin and is deadly serious about it. He's deadly serious as we see in Noah's generation. He blotted out all life. Which leads me to ask myself and leads me to ask you, do you take rebellion against God in your heart seriously? Do you take that sinful thought in your heart against God seriously? Do you take that loose word in your mouth against God and neighbour seriously? Do you take that loose deed that you committed against someone seriously? And the answer is maybe yes. Maybe I should. Because with God, nothing escapes his eye. So then the next thing God sees, in contrast to 
Every intention of man's heart was only evil continually all the time. He sees against this bleak backdrop, Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And what did all these three terms, righteous, blameless, doesn't mean sinless. Righteous, blameless, walk with God, a term of intimacy, walk with God, a term of intimacy. And it is predicated, it's expanded, it is displayed for us. What does all this mean? Noah was a man under instruction. He did everything as God commanded. He did everything as God commanded. He was in total contrast to his generation where men and women live with no Ching Hu or no government. Ching Hu is a local dialect. No government. A man under instruction. So three times at least. So when God sees Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was in total contrast with the totally sinful who were totally depraved. A shining light against a dark canvas. It all comes down to Noah. Is he worthy? Worthy of his name, comfort? Worthy of his name, rest? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. This is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where Peter is warning his church that sin is real, rebellion is real, and judgment for sin is real. And please take note, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others his family, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And so we fast forward. Then, Peter the apostle, who came to believe in Jesus as his Savior and his Lord, remember Peter denied Jesus as a suffering Christ? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and how to judge the wicked. Whatever you do not know about this God, the true and the living God, He knows how to do two things perfectly. Whatever you do not know, please know that God knows how to judge and God knows how to save. And God knows the best person for the job. And the best person for the job who will bring ultimate comfort and ultimate rest from Satan, from sin and from death is not Noah. And you sit there thinking, really? Why? You have to come next week. <laughs> Genesis 8 will tell you why. Genesis 9 will tell you why. We go back. So God saw, God saw. And finally, when Jesus comes, He came 2,000 years ago, and it's recorded in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, they looked, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Same line of salvation, but this is one who will be the final, the final saviour from Satan's sin and death. And then by the last book, John is asking, as he sees this vision, the church being persecuted, political persecution, religious persecution, man-made disasters, natural disasters, the church of God is asking, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord? 
Who will come and who is worthy to undo the seal and the scrolls that will judge the ungodly and save those who believe in you? Who will... And they saw is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who is worthy. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, not for anything you did, but for everything we did. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them now not a curse, not the recipient of your wrath. You have made them now through faith in Jesus, a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Whatever you do not know, Please take note of what God looks at. He looks at us and He sees that every inclination of our hearts was only evil all the time. He looked at Noah and found a man who was blameless and walked with God, and Noah gave temporary relief. But from Noah will, find, will come the final seed from, from Eve's line, Genesis 3.15, one who will strike the head of the serpent, crush the work of the serpent, and it's not Noah. Is Noah's descendant, Jesus. And it is He, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. From the ark to the cross, please know this, God knows how to judge. God's know, God knows how to save. And God knows the best person for the job, Jesus and the church. Amen? I do not know whether you're waiting for God to come and judge, to bring justice where there has been injustice. So true story is told of Prila Phyllis in Philippines. There was a young girl during World War II in 1941-42 when the Japanese marched in. She and some of the pretty girls of her village were taken by the Japanese troops to become comfort women. A nice term, a nice term to say that they became sex slaves to the Japanese occupying forces at that time. And he scarred her, brutalized her. She survived that. After the war, she managed to get married. And then a rumor was passed, and the rumor was passed by someone in her village that she had married into, to the husband, that Prilla had willingly become just a woman for the troops so that she could have a comfortable life. And when her husband heard that, he beat her up and he threw her out with three children that she bore to him. And she had to go and find a living for herself and her three kids. When you hear of a story like this, you do need to ask, is there a God who will finally bring vindication for Prilla Phyllis? And the answer is, through our tears, through our brokenness, through our long waiting, this God will come to judge the ungodly and to save those who put their lives and put their faith in the only one who can save us from His rightful wrath, Jesus Christ. We look to the sun and we gather all the time to remind ourselves of this. And so last week, we were called to go and baptise this sister in Christ, newfound sister in Christ, newfound faith. And so we baptize her at her home. 
a lovely lady in Christ, but struck with aggressive cancer, aggressive cancer that's really, really affecting her. And so we gathered there, and who did she invite to her baptism? Her teachers from all those years ago when she was in mission school. Her friends from all those years ago who tried to share Jesus with her. And she studied the Bible as a subject. And she passed and she did well. But the part of her testimony that struck me before I baptized her was her teacher shared the gospel with her. Her friends shared Jesus with her. They read the Bible with her. But she never took it seriously. She never took it seriously. She never took it seriously. She never took it seriously till now. And then as she was stricken with this, her brother, who is a member of this church, remembered the sermon that I preached when I said I went to Japan and I said my last goodbye, what turned out to be my last goodbye to my sister who was dying of cancer there. And my sister said to me at the train station, I've shared this, I won't look you in the eye when we say goodbye. I will just turn my back and say sayonara. Because for us, there are no goodbyes. It's just I'll see you later. Sayonara. I'll see you later. If Jesus hasn't come, if Jesus hasn't risen, all that we are doing here is lying to each other. But from the time he came to the time he suffered, to the time he died on the cross, to the time he rose, to now him sitting at God's right hand and knowing the state of the world, he will hear our prayers. He will return. So whatever you do not know about this God and our Lord, he knows how to judge. He knows how to save. And God, sing that song that we taught you in offering, pre-sermon, is it good that we gather? Is it good that we make every effort through the ups and downs to remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy to judge? Is anyone worthy to save? Is anyone worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll? Yes. The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root. He is Eve's seed. He is Noah's descendant. The lamb who died who, to ransom the slave, then you and me will not be slaves to Satan, slaves to the world, slaves to our sin, but we become the children of God. So no matter what, friends, we gather. And in God's timing, when this comes to an end, we'll gather fully here, transformed by this, having come face to face globally with death staring in our face. Guess what? Death has always stared in our face. You and me just chose to ignore that by our prosperity and our careers and our fri frivolousness of life. God has, death has always stared us in our face. And the only way you can stare death back in the face is to look upon Jesus. Is it good to remind ourselves of this? Say to me, it is good. So it's not for us, Jesus and the cross is not for us to discuss and discard. I said that last week. Not for us to talk about in our small groups, give our opinions of this verse and this word, and then walk away. He doesn't want your opinion. He wants your obedience. He wants your life. He doesn't want mental assent. 
He doesn't want you to listen to him for, on Sunday for an hour and then forget him for the rest of the week. That's no way to honor the Lamb of God who laid down his life for us. So it's good to remind ourselves of this. And from this point onwards, you know him truly, you worship him fully, unafraid of anyone or anything. And that's how the church of Jesus Christ will stand and give him glory. Let's stand and pray together. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing this closing song reflectively, thankfully, triumphantly. Please forgive us when we are so slow to agree with you that when you look at us, every inclination of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil all the time. And there's no amount of education and no amount of human progress is going to ever change your view of us. That we are rebellious, that we are proud, that we are even stubborn in our pride, and we are very clever at explaining away our sinfulness against you. We are masters at pushing death to the periphery with our pursuit of activity and our pursuit of prosperity. Oh, Father, forgive us. But you look and not just saw our depravity. You look and you saw Noah and he found favour with you. And we know that it's not Noah who will ultimately bring your comfort and your rest. It is the Lord Jesus. Only He is worthy, sinless and blameless. And He came to love us. He came to suffer for us. He came to die for us. And Lord Jesus, You came and You rose for us. By the Father's purpose, by the Father's power, and now you intercede for us. That no matter what crisis and trials we go through, what suffering we go through, that we can still say, come Lord Jesus. And when we do ask as your church, why? When are you going to come and bring true justice? May we know that you are the only one who is worthy to undo the scrolls and the seal that will rightly bring judgment on the world and rightly save us. We turn to you and say that you are worthy. So make the church in Wuhan, make the church in Hubei, make the Christians in China, make Christians everywhere, strengthen us to be unafraid, not to be, not to be trapped by the contagiousness of fear, but to spread the contagion of faith and courage that comes from that to share the goodness of believing in Jesus and salvation, not through the ark, but salvation through the cross. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask for this, for it is this that glorifies you. Amen.